0: Hi, I'm Duane DeFries, Executive Director of the IRL Council and the Indian River Lagoon National Estuary Program. Welcome to our One Lagoon, One Voice podcast. Each week, myself or one of my staff members will host leaders in the community, scientists along the lagoon, uh, people who know a lot about the system to talk about some of the problems, and most importantly, some of the solutions to solve the Indian River Lagoon's health and make sure it's great for future generations. If you enjoy hearing us talk story about the lagoon, uh, like and subscribe to this podcast, and be sure to follow us at One Lagoon on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. So let's get the show started and let's talk a little lagoon.
1: Hello and welcome to One Lagoon, One Voice. I'm Dan Kolodny, Chief Operating Officer for the Indian River Lagoon National Estuary Program, and I'll be the host for today's podcast. So today we're here to talk about one of the most iconic and beloved members of the IRL community manatees. These aquatic mammals are known for their docile nature and graceful manner, which have earned them the nickname gentle giants. The West Indian manatee, which is our local species, was expanding its population in the early 2000s and in 2017 was reclassified from endangered to threatened. But in recent years, manatee populations in the Indian River Lagoon have faced increasing and complex threats from declines in water quality that have led to severe algae blooms that killed much of the lagoon seagrass major food source for these manatees. So to help explain these issues and let us know what's being done to support manatee populations in the IRL, we've invited our friend and colleague Dr. Martina DeWitt from the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Martina, welcome to One Lagoon, One Voice.
0: Hi Dan, thanks for having me.
1: So can you give us a little introduction on yourself and how you got into being a marine mammal biologist?
0: Yeah, so I uh, am with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission and I've specialized myself in uh, manatees and I've been here for 17 years. I'm a veterinarian and I practiced as a clinician first, I was back home in the Netherlands and then I was really interested to do more with uh, wild animals and that path took me to Florida and I've always been uh, very much interested in, in manatees and so this opportunity came up, and I was super lucky to get hired to help conserve them.
1: So tell us a little bit about manatees, you know, what makes them so special and different?
0: Yeah, so manatees are unique in many ways. But you know, to start off, um, you gotta realize that manatees are native to Florida. And if you uh, look back at uh, fossils of about like 50 million years ago, manatees were already here and those animals if you look at the natural history museums where they have some of those specimens they look very different from the manatees that we have now they still had uh, short legs and all but about a million years ago uh, you have the manatees like we still have here today
1: i'm glad you've mentioned that because i hear all the time when i'm out on the water boating that that they're not native and that's quite the contrary so appreciate you telling us that
0: yeah, here are certainly part of Florida and uh, have been here longer than uh, than all of us.
1: So what's some of their, their range here in Florida? Do they spread elsewhere besides Florida?
0: Yeah, so Florida is uh, the manatees home. But during the summertime, some manatees will venture out and they will travel along the coast and you can find manatees as far west as Texas. And then you have manatees that um, follow the Atlantic coastline that will end up in the Carolinas or, you know, as far north as Virginia and the most northern one has even been in Massachusetts.
1: Wow, that's incredible. They really do travel.
0: They do, um, but that's only during the summertime. So manatees are subtropical animals and they are susceptible to cold. So when water temperatures drop into the 60s, uh, manatees can develop a disease that um, is called cold stress disease, cold stress syndrome, also known as Florida frostbite. And that's because they uh, do not have much natural insulation and a very low metabolic rate. So to avoid getting sick, they have to stay warm and they travel to warm water sites. And that's why they all have to return to Florida and even manatees that stay in Florida year round have to seek out those specific warm water sites.
1: Can you describe what a warm water site is for our listeners?
0: There are several warm water sites that manatees in florida will use one of the most popular ones that the majority of manatees use are discharges from power plants and you have a very popular one in the lagoon uh, the fpnl canaveral power plant manatees will also use natural warm water springs on the west coast there's for example crystal river You have Blue Springs in the St. John's River, and then manatees can also use the thermal basins and examples of that in the lagoon are found in Satellite Beach.
1: So what specifically attracts, you know, manatees to the IRL? What makes the IRL so special as far as population wise, because I know thousands of them sometimes hang out at that uh, warm water power plant. So what makes it so special?
0: Yeah, so the lagoon, Indian River Lagoon, is popular with manatees for several reasons. And one of the main attractions is that warm water that they find there in the winter. And you can find, like you say, more than a thousand manatees uh, sometimes using those warm water sites there. And in peak time during the spring, about 70% of the Atlantic subpopulation can be all together in that site. So very popular during the winter. It provides us um, pretty good warm water habitat. But even after winter and spring, um, if manatees do not have to stay warm at their warm water sites, and you will see manatees venturing out and moving north, and like I already mentioned, some will move out of state, you'll have manatees that stay in the IRL year round. And for example, you have animals coming from the south that overwinter in South Florida, and they will spend their summer in the Indian River Lagoon. And it used to be because there was, you know, wonderful lush seagrass, so perfect habitat to feed and just spend your summertime there.
1: So I'm glad you touched on seagrass, which is their main food source, right? And so, you know, I kind of mentioned a little bit in the beginning that they were delisted from endangered to threatened, which suggests that uh, they're doing okay. But we've seen this massive die off in the last couple of years and can you kind of just go over what's caused that
0: yeah so you know first of all that delisting the fact that manatees were considered threatened when they were assessed uh, years ago doesn't mean that they were doing okay it was just less chance of immediate extinction but we all recognize that there is always threats to manatees and before we got into this event that's ongoing at the Atlantic coast now, we had these historical threats, statewide to humanities, which are watercraft collisions that lead to mortality and the loss of warm water habitat so no matter what, those are the threats that are still here and are ongoing and then, in addition, in Southwest Florida, you have the red tide blooms that have been associated with mass mortality and manatees as well, so all that you know that's enough threats to be concerned about the manatee population long term, and meaning they need management and protection. So now recently, uh, what you brought up, we have this new threat that is centered in the Indian River Lagoon, and that is the loss of seagrass that has led to mass starvation, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, that's hard to hear about all these animals starving. And so you said big mortality event and a term I've I've heard thrown around a few times is an unusual mortality event. Can you kind of go into what that entails and what that definition means?
0: Yeah, yeah. So an unusual mortality event, or for short UME, it's a federal declaration that comes from the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And it's um, assigned to stranding events that need attention. And it could be because they're unusual findings, or there's a large scale die off, and those events need to be responded to. So this is a federal declaration. And sometimes it's more like a bureaucracy, you know, it means extra paperwork for us because we respond to manatees no matter what. But in this case, uh, when we had a UME declared in March of 2021 for this starvation event, it really helped us to bring in extra resources. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, and the state They work together to set up an incident command system, ICS for short, is a mechanism for disaster response. For example, right now with Hurricane Ian, it's a perfect example how all the response is being organized. So we had that same structure, a military structure, if if you will, to respond to uh, the manatee problems uh, associated with the Atlantic event.
1: How are they trying to get a handle on the problem?
0: The real problem is the ill habitat, right? So we all recognize that habitat restoration is key. And that's the only solution for manatees long-term for their survival. And that's not something that can be done overnight. At least what this die-off did uh, was it brought extra attention to What all of us who've worked in the lagoon for years, you know, we've known that there are problems, but at least, you know, manatees brought extra awareness and it came with extra funding. So it, at least it helps to uh, get some more of those projects for restoration off the ground. So besides that, you know, realizing that this is going to be something that's going to be long-term in the short term, there are uh, several things that we did to uh, help manatees pull through. Like one of the first things that we always do is uh, rescue live manatees that are sick and in this case, emaciated manatees. So there's this great collaboration within the Manatee Rehabilitation Partnership, where we as the state, as FWC are the first responders to rescue the manatees and then we bring them to the critical care facilities to get treated so this really i would say it takes a village but in this case it took more more than that and the country we have facilities out of state as well so everyone worked together to be able to house as many manatees as possible that were rescued and needed treatment and they were actually really successful like they got the best clinical care that you can even think of for manatees and it takes a long time it takes months for these animals to turn around but many of them have been released again so it's a great example of the successes that we can do with rehabilitation
1: that's great to hear that that they actually uh, survive their uh, experience so you said it takes a couple months for a manatee to to be returned
0: at least for, for these cases that were, uh, thin and emaciated at least four to five months, but you know, some animals almost look like skeletons when we rescued them. And even those animals, you know, slowly put on back weight with the right care and were able to be released.
1: That's great. And so I know that cold stress is a, a big issue for them, you know, on top of this, uh, emaciation. So in the winter, um, I know last winter there was, uh, some feeding going on. Can you talk about that provisioning a little bit?
0: Yeah, you hit the point there. This uh, starvation and the lack of food, that's a year round problem. But we see during the winter when you have that extra stressor of cold on these animals that are already in poor condition, that that really pushes them over the edge. So what we did last winter was an emergency action for supplemental feeding and it was the first time that was ever attempted large scale uh, in a marine mammal and it really was an emergency action it it was meant as a band-aid because we know that these animals um, you, you cannot feed them enough in the wild to put on weight but the manatees that you know were just in good enough health just to pull them through that winter when they have that extra stressor of cold That that was the aim to help them a little bit. And then once spring was here, they can venture out again and seek food for themselves. So yes, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the state organized this supplemental feeding program and manatees ate a bit more over 200,000 pounds of lettuce of produce over a couple of months.
1: Wow. How many animals do you think that... um would translate to roughly.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it was interesting that, like on the peak day when it was the coldest day of the year, and and remember we did this at the FPNL Canaveral plant where um, we had this temporary response field station set up to do this. So the animals already came there for the warm water and then, you know, got the food there as well. Uh, So on the coldest days, there were more than 700 manatees counted in that area. We do not know how many actually ate it and how much they ate. Um, You know, over winter, obviously those numbers went down and, you know, there were maybe a couple manatees or tens of manatees. Um, So it's impossible to tell how many manatees um, actually ate and how much they ate. Like I said, it's just a band-aid. like manatees, mm-hmm. normally they eat about 7% of their body weight. So for an adult manatee that weighs about 1000 pounds, if they eat a lot, that can be 100 pounds per day. So obviously we couldn't feed that much. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's right. And, and they don't eat just seagrass. I mean, they're pretty opportunistic, right? They'll, they'll eat just about anything they can find that's vegetative, right?
0: Yeah. Seagrass is their main diet, but if seagrass is not around, they will turn to other sorts of vegetation. And I, I think that's also one of the reasons why it took a while for this starvation event to develop, because we know that seagrass was in decline for, uh, for a decade now mm-hmm. and manatees turned to other food sources initially you had a lot of this surface vegetation, the macroalgae. We know that there were a lot of animals who switched their diet to that. So when there's no seagrass, they will try other sorts of vegetation.
1: Yeah. And, And we've seen so much of this Calerpa resurgence in the lagoon. Is there any indication that they eat that at all? Or
0: Yep, yeah. We've done some uh, analyses on, on stomach contents where we found the cholerpa in. Uh, we've also had field observations of manatees eating it. It just doesn't seem to be very tasty. And, and there are animals who, based on tracking records that we have with their uh, GPS trackers, that they will pass by these cholerpa beds and they, they won't touch it. So I think it's like a personal preference and it's not the most tastiest of vegetation out there.
1: I gotcha. And so just to clarify for our listeners, kelp is a type of macroalgae that looks a lot like seagrass from above. And until you actually dig down in the water, you can actually see the difference between what a kelp and seagrass is. Mm-hmm. So Martina, what's the benefit of manatees? What do they bring to the IRL and to the... Uh environment as a whole what's the importance of manatees in the ecosystem
0: yeah well you know everyone has their own reasons to be interested in them i think it speaks for themselves that you know they're a symbol of florida like they've been around for millions and millions of years it's a shame if they go extinct and they may not go extinct in other parts of the state like manatees on the Gulf Coast are, are are doing well, St. John's River system too. But, you know, it tells you something if you have a habitat that has hosted manatees for so long and now there's something wrong with it. So that not only affects manatees, it affects the whole ecosystem. So even if you do not care for manatees per se, if you care about Florida and its environment, manatees are just a symbol. So if you can keep manatees around, that means that your ecosystem is healthy enough for all the wildlife out there.
1: I'm glad you uh, touched on that a little bit because you know, I always hear people say, well, they're eating all the seagrasses trying to come back and they're going to prohibit expansion of seagrass beds. So I'm glad you touched on that, that uh, they're not going to impact in a negative way
0: if you are trying restoration and you have like the little sprouts growing and amenity finds that, um, you know, I, I know there have been some failures on that end where, where amenities ate the sprouts, but in the big picture, it should not matter. And amenities keep the seagrasses healthy. We just have to get past that breaking point right now.
1: For me personally, it's it's always brings you some sense of joy when you see them out there. Cause they, you know, people love megafauna, like dolphins and, and big animals. And so, you know, I can always think back to some of my first experiences out on the lagoon and, and being out there fishing and this thing pops up and you know, what the heck is that? And there's this manatee just hanging out, you know, kind of like asking you, what you, what you catching? What's going on? (laughs) So they're always, uh, always fun to see out there. Um, what can people do, to help manatee populations, you know, what can an individual do? What some of the behaviors they can do or organizations they can donate to?
0: Yeah. So there are couple of things people can do directly. Like we've talked about the dead manatees and and the sick and the injured manatees. And the way that we as the first responders learn about those animals is really from the people, the public who's out on the water or who live on the water. And we really rely on those reports. So anyone who sees a sick or injured or dead manatee can call the Wildlife for Learn hotline. That's 1-888-404-3922. And the dispatch center will put the caller in direct contact with one of our local biologists. So um, that way we can intervene and respond when needed. So that's a very important way for people to be involved. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, if you're out on the water, Boating, uh, always be mindful, manatees are out there, even if you're not in a manatee zone, manatees can be everywhere. So it's always helpful to uh, keep your eyes out and wearing polarized glasses will help spot them and slow down if you're close to one. You can also look for the footprints. Those are circles in the water that they leave with their fluke when when they swim.
1: I was just going Um, to mention that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, otherwise obey the the speed zones, obviously. If you see manatees, keep them wild. So don't interact with them. Keep your distance, but, you know, watch them from afar. Also keep the waterways clean. Uh, Simple things like trash and, you know, fishing line. Wildlife, including manatees, can be harmed by that. Like, manatees can ingest it, they can get entangled in it. So keep the waterways clean. Um, Otherwise, you mentioned financial support. If you live in Florida uh, and you renew your license plate, the Save the Manatee license plate supports our manatee work. You can also purchase a decal. And then the supplemental feeding that we talked about earlier, that was mostly paid for by public donations. I believe only $250 came from from a different pot, but almost everything was paid for by public donations uh, through the Fish and Wildlife Foundation. Uh, So people can uh, go there and donate to that. And the website for that is wildlifeflorida.org.
1: So with all that's being done, you know, and like you said, that this has brought so much attention to the habitat and working with the NEP, we're trying to promote this habitat restoration. Are you hopeful that, you know, we can turn this around and make it so it's suitable for manatees in the future?
0: You always have to be hopeful. You know, obviously from my end, I see the bad and the worst of the dead and the sick manatees, but you know, if nothing else, it, um, we can use that to bring the awareness um, and get everyone working on improving this habitat. And I I know there are many bright minds and colleagues working on that. So, yeah, you 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 have to be hopeful. Uh, Amenities are resilient and they're still doing okay in other parts of the state. So that gives us hope that we can turn this around for for amenities and just a little sightings if i can give an example um we uh, had a manatee sighting in georgia over the summer and this manatee was uh, matched based on her scar pattern as uh, seen this winter at the supplemental feeding station and in georgia she was seen with a small calf Um, so you know that gives you hope because you know this starvation it's a horrible condition there are great concerns for uh, chronic health issues and declining reproduction. So anecdotal reports like that mean something that there is hope.
1: That's great. Is there any way the public can stay informed on how manatees are doing or how they're progressing? Is there like a website or a bulletin that you ha- that you post somewhere that kind of has an update on how they're doing?
0: Yeah, yeah, so we uh, we provide manatee updates, especially when uh, things will pick up again this winter, because we do expect manatee problems to uh, um, start to increase again uh, when temperatures cool off. So we will provide more regular updates during that time, and people can visit our website, that's uh, myfwc.com slash research slash manatee.
1: Well, I want to thank Martina for joining me today on today's podcast.
0: Appreciate your support.
1: I just want to thank all our listeners today. And if you enjoy these discussions about the IRL, please like and subscribe to this podcast. To learn more about the IRL NEP, how you can get involved, and tips on living lagoon-friendly, or to purchase One Lagoon merchandise, please visit us at onelagoon.org. Also, to stay informed about Lagoon news and upcoming events, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all at One Lagoon.